Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour today is Jennifer Siner. She's the author of Letters Like the Day on Reading Georgia O'Keeffe, a collection of essays inspired by the letters of the American modernist Georgia O'Keeffe. She's also author of a memoir, Ordinary Trauma. It's a memoir of her military childhood told through linked flash nonfiction. She teaches creative writing at Utah State University, where she's a professor of English. She's also author of the extraordinary work of ordinary writing, Annie Ray's Diary. It's a book about the diary of her great-great-great-aunt, a woman who homesteaded the Dakotas in the late 19th century. Oliver Burke's work to reveal the extraordinary possibilities that arise in the most ordinary moments of her, our lives. Born into a military family, Jennifer Siner has lived all over the United States. While she considers Hawaii her first home, she's come to love northern Utah, where the mountains remind her of the ocean in a way they crest all around her. She graduated from the University of Nebraska, University of Hawaii, and the University of Michigan. She's married to the poet Michael Souter. They have two boys as well as a passel of animals, and uh, she's taking a break from those uh, <laughs> boys and animals today. Uh, joining us in studio, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you so much for having me. We appreciate you uh, being with us. We're going to talk mostly about the, the latest two books, but we'll dip back and talk about uh, Annie Ray's uh, diary. I was just uh, thinking, that's uh, y- y- we all, if we think about it, have pretty extraordinary ancestors, forebears, right? Your great, great, Great aunt, no no exception. Homesteaded the Dakotas late nineteenth century. She did, um, and I was given her diary in about nineteen ninety six or ninety seven by my great aunt, and it was interesting. The diary is kept not in an actual physical diary, but in a ledger book, an accounting book, like you would use for keeping track of a business or your finances. And the diary itself was not typical of 19th century diaries. It didn't really talk about the days in any extended way. In fact, she uh, more or less kept track of the loaves of bread that she baked or if she'd mopped the floor, the letters that she'd received. But it was very, um, there wasn't much there. And so I was struck by the fact that she must have led a very extraordinary life. But when she went to write about it, she didn't tell us about those days. Mm. And that made me interested in what was she doing instead. If she wasn't telling us about what was going on inside or who she was visiting with, then why keep the diary and what was it doing? And that Mm. led me to think about the work of ordinary writing Mm. and how that also reveals things about our lives. So it was it was what she didn't didn't put in exactly you know, that fascinated you absolutely yeah um, and we'll we'll talk about that as we go along um, maybe we can uh, start briefly before I have you read a passage from the beginning of your book Ordinary Trauma you say in the afterward to that book writing memoir makes us more compassionate toward others and toward ourselves and I and I believe that deeply I teach memoir at Utah State University and every semester I think my students would agree with me by the time we're done we understand that honestly the world would be a better place if we all wrote memoir and that's because to write memoir requires first deciding on a memory or a moment that you want to consider to think about And so if you think about the thousands and thousands of moments that make up your life, you're asked to sit down one day, let's say, and pick a particular childhood home, and perhaps in that home mark uh, a few memories or physical things that happened in that home, and then of those moments that you've isolated, to pick one, and then to start writing about it. 
And by the very fact that you've chosen that memory, that moment, that says something to who you are and who you were, who you're becoming. And so your job then is to figure out what matters there. So taking the what of what happened, the memory that you have, and then moving toward the so what, why it matters. And in that work, you start to understand so much about who you are, both um, in positive and wonderful ways, and then also in in limiting ways, in ways that you um, maybe failed to see or failed to understand. And at the same time, because you're working in art and you're creating these characters who aren't just stereotypes, but are rounded and complex people, all of a sudden you are trying to get at the humanity of the others that were involved in that memory. So say it's about your family, you're thinking in harder ways about your father or your mother and about yourself. And so in the end, when you actually move toward art, taking this memory and then making it into art, which for memoir requires not just the literary techniques of fiction, but that second kind of reflective move to consider why the moment matters, then what, what to do that, to make that movement, um, relies entirely on understanding your humanity and others. Mm-hmm. And so your heart opens and you become a bigger person, a more understanding person. And then you take that over the course of a semester or for my in my case, this book, and you have so many opportunities to really understand what it means to be human and the limits and possibilities that we have in our lives. Um, And so I do think if we all investigated ourselves and figured out those kinds of larger questions that drive us, then we would be more open, capacious, and understanding people. Hmm. What do you... And I take all that you've you've said, uh, and and I apply that to Annie Ray. Mm Mm-hmm. Why and I'm curious if you've come to a conclusion why she wrote what she did. She didn't write her feelings, right? She right no. She she, the she wrote kind of the minutia right uh, of every day. In that book, I start to think about why. Let's say you were alone in the late uh, 1800s. Her husband Charlie was an itinerant blacksmith. He was gone. For long periods of time, she was far away from any neighbors, so she really was alone. Um, she lived on the prairie. The, there were, of course, lots of natural forces around her, storms and um, you know big events like that. And there was also poverty in her own life, not having enough. And when I think about her in those ways, and then what it would mean for her to then try to nail down some sense of stability... All of a sudden, I see that bread baking and that mopping and those darning of the socks as a way to sort of get some control Mm. over the things that are too big for her to actually Mm -hmm. name out loud. I think there's evidence that Charlie had an affair. I think that there's evidence that she wanted children and was unable to have them. So there are these monstrous sadnesses in her life. And I see in the way she uses her diary, I see her trying to... um, hold on to what she can hold on to because if she were to open the door, she would be swept away. Mm. Yeah. I think a lot of people can relate to that, I, can't they? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Now, there's a danger on the other side, perhaps. I don't know. If you open that door, right? There's gonna you get, you're going to have to deal with some scary things. Absolutely. Um, and there's, there are several different ways to open that door. So, for example, 
Um, maybe you're just keeping your own journal. A lot of people just write down things that have happened in their day. And that can be a really good place for you to get out some of that stuff and to try and at least um, narrate it into some form and in that way gain some control over it. So that's one option. If you're talking about somebody who's been, you know, abused, traumatized, so that the pain that they're experiencing and dealing with is greater maybe than um, someone's normal, ordinary pain. These are all, it's hard to talk about this kind of trauma on a continuum, but let's say we're talking about somebody who's actually undergone a kind of uh, psychological trauma, then writing also can work there, especially when combined with talk therapy, because writing allows for revision. And so there have been many studies that have shown that when those who've been traumatized begin to tap into these traumatic events, they again get a kind of control over them and they can revise them into a way that they can then carry. So in that way, that's another way that writing can help. But there's a third way too, and that's what I'm doing in my classroom and what I do here in my book and my work, and that is moving these big, powerful events or moments in our lives, things that threaten to overwhelm us, and then moving them toward art. So that's one more movement. And in that movement, again, it goes to this idea of sitting with your own memories, figuring out what the metaphors are there, figuring out a pathway through those metaphors. And then here's the important part, figuring out how to write about that in a way that others can enter into it. So that's through scene and detail, sensory detail, those kinds of things. Because it, I am not, when I write ordinary trauma, I am not speaking only to military children who came of age in the 1980s and moved around a lot. That is not my primary audience. My audience is much broader. And so I have to be able to take these experiences and move to this place where my understanding of what happened is something that others can join into. Mm -hmm. So um, Scott Sanders has a lovely line that I use all the time in my classes, which is something like, um, he doesn't write about his memories because he's selfish. He writes about them as a way to create a door through which others might pass. Mm -hmm. And I think that's our work as memoirists and as artists, to create these doors or these opportunities for other people to enter in with their own experiences. Mm -hmm. So that's a third way that I think writing and things that threaten to overwhelm us, or how things that threaten to overwhelm us, how writing helps work with that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. I wonder if have you uh, read uh, passages comes early. It's in the first chapter. It's uh, page four, and then over over uh, continuing the, to the end of the, the chapter. Uh, we'll uh, we can set this up. Um, your father, a young man at that point. Yes. Uh, your father and mother are in Texas. They are. Your father's in the military, um, and he's uh, right that he he went home. He changed into a suit. I guess he shaved. He wanted yes. to be ready for the birth of his of his daughter. He did. Um, the doctor comes in, um, and maybe just tell us that part and then, and then read, uh, over the page. So my father drops my mother off at the Kingsville County Hospital and returns and shaves and gets suited up and comes back. And then he ends up having to wait in the waiting room for a, a very long time. So long that he starts to understand that something has gone badly in the delivery room. And that gets confirmed when the doctor comes into my father and he's covered in blood and he explains to my father that um, I am 
breach in my in my mother's womb and her uterus and that there's no way that he can get the baby out. He, my father has to make a choice. My father can save his wife or he can save his child, but the doctor cannot save both of them. And so my father chooses to save my mother and then the doctor leaves the room to then do what he needs to do in order to save my mother. Yeah, I, I can't even imagine being presented with that choice. Nor can I, yeah. and I, I mean, I think it's one of those things that, I mean, I can't speak for my father, but I'd be willing to bet is one of those moments that forever shaped his life because, mm-hmm. um, I, you know, those are the, that's a decision that you can't even imagine being asked to make, mm-hmm. and then you have 30 seconds in which to make it. Yeah. So he made his choice. He, he tells the doctor, go in and, and save mm-hmm. my wife, and then uh, and this is where the passage begins. What is happening in the delivery room now that the doctor has returned with the father's decision? The doctor's patient has long been unconscious. Perhaps from the drugs or the pain or the loss of blood, she has slipped into a comatose state. The baby is wedged in the birth canal, doubled up, her rear end first. The doctor is not able to say for sure what has gone wrong. He reviews his decisions, questions his choices, and considers the options that remain. At moments, the delivery room had been noisy and panicked. There were the pain-filled screams of the then-conscious woman, the shouted commands of the doctor, and the urgent questions from the nurses. Now, as the doctor studies the rear end of the baby and considers how best to remove the body, it is quiet. The baby is a test question he works to get right. In the end, he chooses to fracture. With confidence born from a decision reached, he breaks her collarbone swiftly and in doing so, severs the nerves in her neck. No longer worried about the fact that the umbilical cord is wrapped around her windpipe, denying her oxygen for long periods of time, he pulls the broken body out with forceps. Father waiting, mother unconscious, the darkened body of the fetus is dropped into a bucket on the floor and shuttled across the linoleum into an adjoining room. The doctor begins suturing the woman's tears. Sometime later, the wounds almost closed, blood loss stemmed, the color returns to the woman's cheeks like sun on a field. Nurses shuffle in and out of the room, carrying trays and charts and rubber gloves and tools. Some help to stitch the woman back together at the seams. Others begin to scrub the tables and floor. Sometime after 6 p.m., an older, green-scrubbed doctor who has recently begun his shift walks through the adjoining room and sees the bucket, holding the discarded baby on the floor. At first, he does not know that it is a baby. He just sees a form. Intuition, experience, hope, or the universe nevertheless cause him to stop. He makes a choice. From what will forever be known as the dead baby bucket, the doctor pulls the baby out. Though bloody and broken and blue from lack of heat and oxygen, it is breathing. The dead baby breathes. It's Jennifer Siner reading from her uh, memoir, Ordinary Trauma. We have her for the hour uh, today. She's also author of Letters Like the Day on Reading George O'Keefe. It's a collection of essays inspired by the letters of the American modernist, uh, Georgia O'Keefe. So that's amazing. And, and you say you were, you were you came into this world twice. I do. I, that's how I think about it, that the first time I was born into from my mother and the second time from the bucket. Yeah. And you think about what if, what if that doctor hadn't, you know, the second doctor hadn't come oh, in, you know? No, it's really, especially given the time period, I was born in 1969, um, 
I, you know, it, it is a miracle that mm-hmm. I am here. Yeah. So uh, the doctor broke your collarbone to get you out. Mm-hmm. Um, and, th- and then you had sort of elaborate bandaging, which you say your right. parents didn't remove for They were just a, a so worried time. that if they, if they ever took those bandages off, they would never be able to put them back on me. Yeah. I, I imagine, I, cr- I know I cried a lot. I think, I imagine I was in a lot of pain for those first months. And I think it was hard on my parents. They were brand new parents. I mean, having been a brand new parent, it's those first few months just about do you in. And so, and there, here they had this super fragile baby, mm. super fragile, who was clearly unhappy. Mm. And I think those were hard, hard, hard months, I yeah. think. They also worried, and the doctor told them, you might have brain damage? They thought for sure. They thought I would be alive, that I would live, but they thought that I would, you know, be uh, mentally incapacitated. They thought I would have epilepsy. There was a whole long list of things. So my parents, so all new parents are watching their children for developmental signs, but I think my parents were especially concerned Mm -hmm. with making sure that I hit those milestones, and I did. I ended up being entirely healthy. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's wonderful. You write... Um, you'd learned that pain um, made you firm in the knowledge that you were alive. So you had pain from the beginning. And I, that's a, also, I think, you're learning this from your parents as well. Right. It's certainly not something that I understood. I didn't understand that as a child or, you know, even growing up. It's something I've come to understand later in my life. And I actually would credit my husband, Michael Souter, for... Um, teaching me this and helping me think about this. Um, He's very good at seeing um, when damage happens, whether it's like a tear in a picture that you care about or something worse. When these things happen in our lives, our first instinct is to resist it and to want to push it away and to think that something is gone, that we've lost something. And he's really taught me to think about it more as being marked by the world and therefore seeing our place in it and claiming that place and being part of this big, chaotic, messy, beautiful enterprise, not wanting to shuttle half of it away from us because it looks soiled or it looks damaged. Mm. So embracing all of that, which and, is not uh, that's easy. What embracing. It's really, embracing, yeah, it's yeah. not easy. Yeah. I mean, I can say that sitting mm-hmm. here, but, you know, when something happens and I get upset, I will lose all of that mm, and I right. will forget it. But... I think it's important to keep trying to remember to um, hold all of it, all of it, yeah. embrace all of it, because it's it's what makes us human and what's it's what connects us to each other. Yeah. I just parenthetically just flashed into my mind. Um, so you teach creative writing. I do. And you write memoir. I do. Your husband's a poet. He is. Um, I. I, you know, I imagine a very sensitive household, <laughs> a lot of examination of feelings. I don't know if that's, that's a stereotype. No, you know what? Honestly, it's accurate. <laughs> um, we, I think, you know, we're raising these two boys, Aiden and Kellen. They're 10 and 12. And when we were getting ready to have children, I remember thinking that um, I personally had a better chance of raising sensitive boys than strong girls. I think it's really hard to raise strong girls in the world we live in right now. I think we're kind of part of a culture that's really hard on girls. So when I had two boys, I really felt like as a mother, the thing I wanted to make sure I passed on 
or surrounded them with was the idea of being sensitive. And Michael is already, as a poet, he's already extremely sensitive to the world and to interactions with each other. So I think we are a sensitive family, but what that translates to is a lot of crying, <laughs> a lot of crying in the house. Yeah, that fits the stereotype that I had. So It is, but yeah, it's also, it's, there's you know, great empathy. My boys yeah. have enormous empathy mm-hmm. toward other children and toward, toward animals in particular, yeah. actually. Yeah. And uh, I do hope that it means they'll grow up with an open heart, which for me, uh, open-heartedness means that you have... Um, a wounded heart as well, that you're vulnerable, mm-hmm. that you um, recognize that to love means that you are also going to be in pain. Mm. That's part of it. And that's hard to carry sometimes, isn't it? Yeah, you know, right. Because you, you want to, if you've been wounded, you want to close yourself right. off, not to get wounded again. Right. It's a vulnerability there. No, so I, um, I got married, part of Ordinary Trauma. The book ends with my divorce at the age of 25, and I got married at 22, you know, Hindsight, of course, I shouldn't have gotten married that young. That was the wrong person to marry, you could say. I, of course, look back at it and think, no, it's all part of it. That was part of the journey that I needed to go on. But when that relationship failed at the age of 25, I was destroyed by it because I'd really never failed in my life, certainly not that dramatically. I'd always done very well in school. I was a good girl. I really was. And so to fail in such a demonstrable way... I just, I couldn't even believe it had happened to me. And it took a long time for me to recognize, um, to even speak about it. I was so embarrassed by it all. So it took a long time for me to figure out how to carry it, but I recognize now that it is absolutely both getting married, being married for those three years, and getting divorced are these fundamental experiences that make me who I am today. And that is a person who does try to keep her heart open even though she knows that that means pain as well as love mm. and joy. The title, Ordinary Trauma, I, I thought of that title as you were telling that experience. And you, you write in the book that your ex-husband, mm-hmm. maybe you tell that story, he, he tells you that he doesn't love you anymore. Yeah, I mean. But it's kind of in a very he does. He just, ordinary way. He really, it really did. I, I mean, I guess I, I can look back now and I can say there were these signs but at the time, it just, I, I was completely blindsided by it. He literally woke me up in the middle of the night and said that he wanted a divorce. And we, we hadn't even been fighting. Like, there was no quarreling. There, were, there hadn't been anything that I would have recognized as, quote, unquote, being wrong. And it quickly went from that to <clears throat> telling me that he loved me like a sister, which is very hard to hear. I didn't even know what that even, I didn't know what to do with that. Now, he had left me long before that night. I did not realize that, but he had. He had left me long before mentally. He had already begun to grieve and unhook from that relationship. And so um, I just was being told in this matter-of-fact way. And then I had to learn to carry that. I really Mm -hmm. did. And. You, as we all have, you've had to make those choices, right? If you, if you receive that hurt, to right. keep yourself vulnerable, right? Because keep yourself open. For a long time, I would say for the first while, I was just angry. I was so angry. That was the time that Alanis Morissette had first come out, the musician, <laughs> and she's full of anger. And I just identified with her songs entirely, <laughs> and I would play them over and over mm-hmm. again, and yeah. in very loud volume. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I would. I played that out. Jagged Little Pill. I, I yeah. played that over and over as well. Yeah, so no. Know, it, but I was yeah. angry, and, yeah. and it mm-hmm. sort of met my anger. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, anger, it's like you feel nice and safe, or at least I do, because I was raised in a family where there was a lot of anger. I felt safe as an angry person. It just felt safe to be angry. What's harder to do is to understand that there aren't, there are no bad guys there. This just happened. There was no, it's nobody's fault. You know, it wasn't that my ex-husband was a bad person who did bad things and I, and I was the victim. No way. It was all a part of it. We're all in it together. And these things just happen. Mm-hmm. They just happen. You can say that now, right? I can. At the time, no, I was <laughs> writing horrific things in my yeah, journal right, about right. it. But again, writing, is, I guess, writing is a process for, for the helpful process, at least for you and, and for, uh, for many people. No, uh, after that, after when he left me, I was living in Hawaii at the time. He just picked up and moved back to the mainland. And I was left with the car and the apartment. Um, I remember I decided I, I made a choice. I was going to do three things. I was going to go to the store and buy some vitamins. I was going to go to the store and get a journal, which I had not been keeping a journal for years at that point. And I was going to start running again. And honestly, those things saved me. Hmm. Before we go to break, I just want to follow up. You said something very interesting. I want to have you expand on that. You said something like you 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 would rather raise boys and help them to be sensitive, mm-hmm. or at least that'd be in maybe a slightly easier task than raising girls and helping them to be mm-hmm. strong. I I think personally, me, I think I am, am more would be more successful. I'd have a better chance. Um, I you know my childhood. I struggled with my body, as a lot of girls do. I don't know if I struggled more with my body or less with my body, but I've always had a difficult relationship with my body. Um, It's never been one really of acceptance and love. It's always been more antagonistic. And, you know, that's the last thing I would want to pass down to a daughter is is those kinds of things. So um, it personally, for me, I felt like... You know, when you're going into it, you're so overwhelmed by it all. The idea of raising kids, all you want is for them to be healthy and happy. And because I'm a memoirist, because I write, because I know that we are human, and no matter how good our intentions are, we make mistakes. There's no doubt about it. You you will as a parent. I just felt like I had a better chance of raising sensitive boys. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's true mm-hmm. or not. I don't have girls, so I'll never get to know. Right. And you were the only girl, and you had two brothers, right? Yes. I'm very close two. to my mom. And, yeah, mm-hmm. my, I have two younger brothers. So yeah. I have a lot of men in my life. But yeah. I have a lot of women, too. Right. I have both. I wonder, uh, and we'll talk more about this, because it is a theme through the book, uh, your relationship with your body and, and that how that sensory memory right. impresses itself right. on your on your on in your memory. Um, I wonder if any of that goes back to some of that must have gone back to your birth, right? You were you I, were broken yes, to be born, I, yes, discarded, yes, <laughs> and then recovered. No, and I, um, I, I, I believe that uh, how can these first moments in the world not not make a difference, not matter, not help shape who we are? So I think your birth story absolutely. Um, determines to some to some extent the kind of person you become, not to every extent, and maybe not even in an overwhelming way, but for sure, I mm-hmm. think so. The other thing I think that I would point to is, in the in a military culture, really everything around me growing up on these bases was very sleek and very efficient and very masculine. I um, when I would call my dad at work, 
the person that would pick up the phone, he was always male, and he would say, wherever they were, let's say, sync pack fleet, this is not a secure line, how can I help you, sir? So the assumption was, when I called my dad, that I was going to be a man on the other line. And I always had to say, I am not a sir, I am not a man, I am looking for my father. And so there was this real strong sense that the masculine, the efficient, and the sleek, the fast, all of that were what were valuable. And my messy adolescent body did not fit in with that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We'll talk more. We'll take a break. Uh, When we come back more with Jennifer Siner, she is a professor of English at Utah State University. She's author of several books. Uh, Two have come out recently. Uh, One is Letters Like Today on Reading George O'Keefe. That's a collection of essays inspired by the letters of the American modernist George O'Keefe. And we'll uh, get into that book a little later in the program. We've been talking about Ordinary Trauma, a memoir of her military childhood uh, told through linked flash nonfiction. She teaches creative writing at Utah State University. Uh, we should mention here that we're, we're talking about your memoir, mm-hmm. and you're bringing to a Utah State University campus yes. one of the most famous memoirists yes. of our time, yes. Cheryl Strayed. Yes. So Tell Cheryl, us a little bit about that. So through the Tanner Talks and the, Col- and the College of Humanities, Arts and Social, Humanities and Social Sciences, we are bringing Cheryl Strayed to campus. So she will be here in Logan on April 6th at 7 o'clock in the Kane Performance Hall. And tickets to the event are free, but you'd need to get them beforehand. And they'll be made available March 13th, which is a Monday at 11 a.m. And you go to cca.usu.edu to get those tickets. All right. And on that day, March 13th, we'll have Cheryl Strait yeah. with us on this program. She's fantastic. So looking forward to that. Uh, so we'll talk more with Jennifer Siner coming up uh, following this break. This is Science by the Slice. Synthetic spider silk holds promise as a leading biomaterial of the future with its unrivaled combination of strength and elasticity. USU biologists are conquering two major hurdles to its affordable commercial-scale production. The first is development of transgenic bacteria, that is, bacteria with the spider silk protein gene to produce plentiful quantities. The second is the discovery that water provides a safe solvent to craft usable forms of the protein into fibers, gels, coatings, and adhesives for a wide variety of uses. In the future, watch for synthetic ligaments, tendons, and skins, as well as safer airbags and lighter body armor. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in mathematics and varied scientific disciplines. Details at usu.edu science. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Humanities, empowering Utahns to improve their communities through active engagement. Online at utahhumanities.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. I'm joined by Jennifer Siner. She is professor of English at Utah State University, teaches creative writing uh, at USU, and uh, is author of several books. Uh, Two have come out uh, very recently. Uh, one is Ordinary Trauma. It's a memoir of her military childhood and uh, much else in her life. That's been published by University of Utah Press. The other book that's uh, out now is Letters Like the Day on Reading Georgia O'Keeffe, and that's out from University of New Mexico uh, Press. Uh, we uh, Let's mention again here at the beginning of this segment that we're talking about Jennifer Siner's memoir and uh, 
coming to USU in April is uh, a, a very famous memoirist of our time, uh, Cheryl Strade. So tell us again the details. So Cheryl Strade will be here. She'll be here on April 6th at 7 o'clock in the Kane Performance Hall. And tickets are available on March 13th. I expect them to sell out really fast. So right. if you're interested, you really... You want to be on your computer at 11 a.m. on that day. Okay. And again, the place to go on the, on CCA. the computer? CCA.USU.edu. Okay. And we'll remind you again on March 13th because uh, that morning on Access Utah will have Cheryl Strait with us. That's fantastic. By, by telephone. Uh, by the way, you can uh, join us here in this conversation if you would like at uh, upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Or if you'd like to call us, it's 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. Uh, here's just a little bit from Ordinary Trauma. As if she could not bear to leave it, Jennifer Siner came into this spinning world twice, once dead and once alive, the first time born from her mother, the second from a bucket. It's silvery metal sides, a poor substitute for the womb, yet enough. Through uh, spare yet lyrical prose, Siner uh, threads together the story of how she learned to carry the bucket she was born into and reclaim all that was tossed away. Um, so that's a bit of the pu- publisher's uh, blurb there. Mm-hmm. Uh, learn to carry the bucket. That mm-hmm. That's metaphorical? Absolutely. Okay. I, I, I was thinking if it's literal, well, how did the bucket end up with your family? No, okay. no. All right. No, more the idea that we all have our buckets and yes. we're all responsible for carrying them. Yes, right, right. Um, I want to talk a little bit about growing up in a military family. So you moved a lot. You, um, you consider, you say, Hawaii to be your mm-hmm. sort of your, I guess, your home home base? Or well, home? military children don't really have homes. Um, so the reason I would claim Hawaii is because I lived there the most when I was a child. My father was in the JAG Corps. He was an international ocean law specialist. So that meant that we often um, had tours of duty that were either at the Pentagon, so living in Northern Virginia, or in Hawaii, which of course is in the Pacific Ocean. And so we moved back and forth between those two places a lot with um, other travel in there as well. Um, so I do consider Hawaii my home in in some ways. Uh, in, in many ways, I've uh, decided that I am just a perpetual migrator, that migration is really my practice. Now, I've lived in Cache Valley a long time at this point, and so in some ways I could claim the valley as my home, but I think home as a concept, at least in terms of it being tied to a physical place, is something that will never actually feel right to me. Mm-hmm. Is that because you moved so much? It is. Yeah. It really okay. is. I so I guess you have, you have to learn to accommodate that. I You have to learn to adapt? Right. You have to learn to leave things behind Mm. and you have to learn to, you know, let go. And I write in Ordinary Trauma that as a child, even in my diaries, I would inscribe my friends as an absence. So my friends from fourth or fifth or seventh grade, I would list them in the back of my diary when I was still physically living near them, still friends with them. I'd put them in the back of the diary knowing that they would move or we would move and I would need to have an address for them. Right. So in that way, these friends entered my life as an absence already because it was always, I was always going to be going somewhere else. I wonder if have you read, uh, we discussed a passage, I can't remember where it is now, it's the oh, middle, of, middle of the book where you, uh, it's, it's the chapter called Salt. Yes, but I've no longer marked it. Okay, just um, a minute. And uh, just to set this up, uh, this, this kind of gets us into a very interesting way what it's like to uh, always always be moving and you're you're always coming into a place that was uh, okay. previously occupied yes by by another military family 
Or you're giving up a place that the, the especially no, if you're no in right you if you're into. in military housing. So in military housing, a common tour of duty was two years. So in military housing, you move into your house, you're there for two years, and then you're moving out again, and another military family is going to take your place. In the meantime, all around you, people are moving in and out of houses. So there's all this transience. So here's a chapter called the salt. And so maybe page one forty two in the middle of the page, being right. in the military. Okay. Being in the military means that the cupboards in your kitchen are always full of other people's dry goods, things your mother never would have bought at the commissary, raspberry jello, dried manicotti shells, unfamiliar brands of baking powder, refugees from the shelves of neighbors who had recently relocated to military bases in other parts of the country. They have the feel of the exotic. You marvel at how your mother would transform the tubes of pasta into something more familiar slip the jello into a cake mix without you ever knowing it was there. Slowly the supply would dwindle, and with it the memory of the family that had left the goods behind. In turn, you two gather the staples that you could not finish before moving and load them into the red wagon to carry across the street to neighbors. Sometimes you wonder if you aren't all just circulating the same items, a box of carnation-dried milk and a half-used bag of cornmeal, uniting military families more strongly than any shared sense of duty. When you have given away your dry goods, you know that the end is near. Clean the house for final inspection, a few days in a hotel, and then off to a new state, a new house, a new school. Maybe for this reason you always feel protective of the things your neighbors give you, Though the items are often unfamiliar, you know what they mean for those who have just given them up. Continually asked to leave things behind, you become attached to salt. Hmm. Uh, so salt as a, you know, salt as a metaphor. metaphor. Salt, but Again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the, the, you know, I, I was thinking back to uh, Tim O'Brien's. Uh, novel, the things, the, they, things they, they carried. carried yes. and so I was, uh, applying that to you know stateside, the military yes, families, yes. The, the things you carried in, in terms of the metaphorical uh, sense of things you carried. The, the thing that's so ironic there is it's really the things that you shed because mm. um, at least when I was in the military, when I was a child in the military dependent, um, you had to make weight, especially because we were flying over the ocean. So your goods had to be under a certain weight limit and it really meant that you shed a bunch of stuff. You'd have these giant garage sales and just get rid of anything that was particularly heavy so that you could make weight and and move to the next um, duty station. So for me, it wasn't so much about what I got to carry with me as what it was I left behind, mm-hmm. really. Mm-hmm. I want to talk, have you talk a little bit about your father. I really responded to him uh, in, in the book for, for I, I don't know, for whatever yeah, reason. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he grew up on a farm. He did. Uh, well, first, let's start with your grandfather. Your grandfather, at a very young age, mm-hmm. what the word is apprenticed. Mm-hmm. He was apprenticed in a, it was an oil drilling company. So he left, he actually took a train on his own. He just hopped the rails and left Oklahoma and he went to Texas and started working on uh, digging these wells. And he was actually a welder. And the reason he was a welder is because he was so tiny. And they would literally just drop him down these holes. And his responsibility was to weld pipes and fittings together. And he would just work in these really close, dark spaces with just this welding light as his only light. And that's where he began. And then he eventually moved uh, to Nebraska. He bought land. He started farming. Later, he went into real estate. He owned some gas stations. So he sort of became this self-made man, mm-hmm. but um, began like so 
many of um, our relatives began in poverty, began in difficult circumstances. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about that uh, American dream, that upward mm-hmm. mobility, mm-hmm. which uh, you were saying before we started the program, uh, you, and, and I think a lot, many would agree that uh, perhaps that's being lost. Well, I do think that there was, if you look at my grandfather's generation and even my father's generation, my father was raised on a farm. Um, unlike my grandfather, he he finished high school, but the, uh, the idea in the family was that he would just then return to the farm. But his older brother, Jerry, had gone off to college, and my dad had this realization that maybe he too could go to college. And it changed his life. He went to college, then he got a law degree, He began in private practice for a few years, and then when the Vietnam War occurred, he enlisted rather than become drafted, and he went into and became a naval lawyer. And again, the path that he thought his life was going on is not where he ended up, and he had this, there was so much space for him to move. Um, When I look at the, the students that I work with today and the families that they're coming from, the distance they can travel, I think, is smaller. Mm. It's smaller. Mm. Now, you're, you write in the book that your, your grandfather placed a lot of responsibility on, on his sons at a, at, a, at a pretty young age. That's not unusual out on a farm. Not on a farm. I don't think so at all. And he did. And he, yeah. he, was, he didn't do it with kindness. He mm. did it with directness. Mm. And yet, uh, even though they're ha- they have this responsibility placed on them, they're boys. They are. So you have a funny passage. Maybe you can tell me about this. They're, they're, they have a bunch of syringes. They they're supposed to vaccinate they're inoculating some pigs. Some inoculate pigs. some pigs. Yep. Tell me what happened. So my grandfather leaves them and tells them to get this job done. And rather than inoculating the pigs, they fill these glass syringes full of water, turn them into pistols, and spend the afternoon... Um, sort of playing cowboys in the hayloft, shooting each other down with these water guns. But in the course of that, those activities, all the syringes break. And my father and his brother decide that they just need to hide those syringes. And then what's so interesting to me about this story is that that night at dinner, while they're sitting around the table, my grandfather asked my father, did they get the job done? And all of the boys in the family try and figure out some kind of excuse what could possibly be legitimate enough to explain why this has not been done. And the truth comes out, and my father says that he'll go out and find the syringes. But the thing is, is my father goes out to look for them, and he believes that he's going to find them not, all, not broken. He thinks if he digs hard enough, he looks hard enough, that he'll find them already whole. And to me, that just speaks volumes to the kind of what I would call trauma or terror in that family, that um, that's how desperate you would be, that you would imagine these things made new again, even though you know in your heart of hearts that's not true. Mm -hmm. They're broken and gone, but the stakes were so high. So ordinary trauma. Right. So it's also extraordinary, you know, to, to him it's extraordinary, but ordinary in the sense that this happens in many, many families. Exactly. This happens in many lives. In, in the book, in my book, Ordinary Trauma, I'm looking at two different kinds of what I call ordinary trauma. So for me, growing up on this military base, which was all involved in the preparation for war, I mean, that's what the military does. It's what its job is, is to defend the country and prepare for war. So I was surrounded by all of these military preparations, and especially in the, in the 80s, you know, war was just a heartbeat away, always for me. And so conversation around the dinner table was not, or it could have been, but 
was not what did you do today, but was, would often focus on nuclear deterrence or the nuclear option or um, ICBMs. Like these are the things that we would be talking about. And um, that is a kind of ordinary trauma to be surrounded by the paraphernalia of war, but to have it be made made ordinary mm-hmm. as if this is what it means to be a child. Whereas for most people, that's not what it means to be a child. They're not surrounded by soldiers running around with guns. So it's made ordinary, even though it is, it has traumatic possibilities to it. Mm -hmm. And the other example is, I think, growing up on a farm or a ranch where putting animals down and having to do these difficult tasks that involve life and death, that's just what you have to do. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, on the ranch, that's what you have to do. That's the ordinary but to someone who has an experience that they would look at that and see it filled with trauma and terror. Yeah. So it's ordinary trauma. You have a passage in in the book, your your father pigs on the farm, your father bonds with one. Right. At a certain point his father says, You gotta yeah, kill it. You gotta kill it. And so it's a little baby pig and my father becomes really attached to it and carries this little pig around with him to do his chores. You know, and he's ten at the time. My son, Kellen, is ten and I cannot imagine sending my son out to the backyard with a ball-peen hammer and his pet pig to smash his skull. And yet that's what his father, my grandfather, asked my father to do. And I just think that moment that you bring that hammer down on that skull of that pig, that's not a moment you let go of. That's a moment you carry and and can erupt again in violence down the road. You say in this book and then in your preface to the George O'Keefe book that, uh, well, you talk in, about in Hawaii, you had a, there's a bomb shelter out, out mm-hmm. back, uh, and many bomb shelters around, and anyone of a certain age knows that you that, that you knew where to go, right. right? Including, and you look back and it's it's risible now that you were supposed to get under your desk, right? To, right. No. Uh, um, and then later on you say that you, you were, you, you as a teenager, you thought a lot about nuclear oh, yeah. war. No. I very much did. I, I was convinced that there would be war and that it was, it was just a matter of time. And I knew enough to know that we wouldn't survive it either. It, it was a real—the possibility of war was not just something I pondered. It was very real to me and scary, very scary. Uh, so bringing it back to your father, um, you have some telling details, including the fact— I don't. I guess, guess never ask him about this uh, directly. He would leave at the end of movies. He would leave the room. Yes, yes, he, he does. Um, and again, I you know I would point back to his childhood and to what he was asked to do, and to you know, my father would tell you he is the most fortunate person in the world that his life has been the luckiest, and in many ways I see that. But I also know that there's been a lot of pain, too. And my father is the kind of person who would prefer to just focus on the happy and not have the pain. So for him, he loves a good movie. He loves the drama. He loves the buildup of the story. But he doesn't really care. He doesn't want to have that emotional stuff at the end. That's Mm. too painful, I think, a little too close to home. It brings up things that he maybe would prefer not to think about. And I really understand that. So we've talked a bit about your boys. What do you, like we've talked a little bit about this, mm-hmm. but uh, I'm sure you carry lessons forward from your 
father in of terms course. of how you want to raise your boys. I do, but at the same time, I replicate. I mean, this is what we all do. These are the patterns that get established. One of the things that happens in ordinary traumas, I'm trying to show how these legacies of, in my case, anger and violence, they get handed down. It's um, almost in the DNA where you... Um, uh, you grow up in a certain environment and then you recreate that environment. And mm. so, yes, I work very hard to raise my boys like any mother would in a loving and nurturing environment. But I have a temper and I can be impatient and I can say unkind things. And I hear my father sometimes in the things that I say. And it shocks me mm. that I do. And, but that just shows how strong these things are, mm. strong like blood. So speaking of that, do you think that goes back further? For example, your great 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 right. aunt. What, right. what do you think you carry from from her? I mean, you, you didn't know her. No, you got to know her a little bit through her. No, but all of this ledger. stuff comes down, I think, through through blood, through culture, and and does shape who we are. Does it completely determine who we are? No, it doesn't. Am I the same person as my father? Absolutely not. But I carry parts of him with me, as I do my mother and even my great-great-great-aunt. I think Mm. these things are inescapable. I think the important thing is to recognize them and to realize that you bring, that you're handed both the positive and the negative, the good and the bad, that it's not just one way. Mm. My father isn't just one person, nor was my great-great-great-aunt, nor nor is Georgia O'Keeffe, nor Mm. am I. We're Mm. all these complicated beings. And we, um, we do ourselves a disservice to think otherwise. We just have about three minutes left, and I do want to talk just a little bit about the George O'Keefe book. Letters like the day on reading George O'Keefe. We're talking with Jennifer Siner. We've been talking about her uh, memoir, Ordinary Trauma. So uh, George O'Keefe, of course, is a, is a great modernist. American modernist, um, yes. A visual artist. Yes, mostly known for visual work. You got into her letters in a big way. When, uh, tell us how that happened briefly. Well, it was, you know, it's hard for me to actually understand how it happens. I think you just work intuitively. And so I was, I know we were going back to Hawaii and I was doing some research online and I bumped into these letters that O'Keefe had written when she had gone to Hawaii in 1939. And I started to read them and I was just taken with them. And this was right at the time when her letters had been released. So her letters and her husband's who is the photographer Alfred Stieglitz, their letters were released um, about 20 years ago now from their archive and made public. And so all of a sudden there was this wealth of material that had just come out. And I just dove into it. I was so taken with the letters and the kind of self she creates on the page. It was an easy project to dive into. So this book, you you write essays. And one of the things you're trying to do with form is to, I don't know, approximate her visual style? Well, what happened is I, I read her letters. I read all of her letters and I thought, how could I respond to this? I knew as a writer I wanted to respond, but I didn't want to write a biography of O'Keefe. Or I didn't want to write a scholarly book about what her letters were doing rhetorically. I didn't want to do anything like that because I had was primarily moved by her letters. My response was emotional more than intellectual. And she writes about that with her own painting. She says that she works with more feeling than brain, that the intellect gets in the way, and that really what the artist has to do is get in touch with their inner emotional selves and try to replicate the experience of being and seeing 
try to replicate that for the viewer, in O'Keefe's case, or for the reader. So I read these letters, and I just sat with them. I just sat with them, and then I waited to see how my own life intersected with the letters, other things that were happening in my life, and then I created essays that rise out of those letters. So they do, the essays give us a lot of information about O'Keefe and about her letters, but they're also doing something else, which is trying to push to a different space where you're more, ex- you're experiencing something more than actually just learning about something. We have reached the end of our time, and I want to uh, make sure we... Uh uh, tell uh, our listeners uh, the books we've been talking about so they can go out and read them. Ordinary Trauma, it's a memoir by Jennifer Siner, and Letters Like the Day on Reading Georgia O'Keeffe, also by Jennifer Siner, who we've had with us. She's a USU professor of English, teaches creative writing at Utah State University. And uh, tell us once again details on the Cheryl Strayed So she'll be here visit. April 6th at 7 o'clock. That's a Thursday in the Performance Hall. Tickets are on sale at 11 a.m. Monday, March 13th cca.usu.edu. All right. And on March 13th, we'll have Cheryl Strayed with us here on Access Utah. Jennifer Siner, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, Tomorrow, we're going to uh, dive into a controversy that uh, erupted uh, when a Wasatch County Republican official uh, wrote um, some very controversial um, comments about the wage gap between men and women. Uh, his uh, point was that uh, maybe maybe the wage gap's a good thing. And so that's he, he got a lot of pushback, including from fellow Republicans. We're going to talk with a few people about wage gap. There's a, a bill in the legislative uh, legislature on this as well. And that's our program for tomorrow. Thanks for listening today. service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. This is Utah Public Radio. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCU Price, and KUSU FM Logan. Heard online at upr.org.